I find uh, faces are quite uh, tricky. You're sitting at your desk. It's almost four o'clock. And uh, to get a, a, a reasonable appearance out of it, rather than something that looks flat or whatever, you, you need to be a lot more particular. You're having trouble keeping your eyes open. You know, for something like that one there, I've had to introduce a type of little uh, cheek or a smile into it. You decide you need something sweet, like a sneaky pack of jelly babies, or something else with lots of sugar. You might even be partial to the odd party mix. And, I mean, the eyelids are exaggerated, but that's what they're looking for. You know, they're looking for Mr Sleepy or whatever, you know. But when was the last time you actually stopped before you scoffed and really looked at that lolly? You have to think of the jube and how it's going to feel. That's going to be a little bit thin on the foot end there. And so you would be trying to uh, avoid that, even though the customer possibly doesn't realise it, I do. You're listening to History Lab, a podcast exploring the gaps between us and the past. I'm Tamsin Peach, and in this episode of History Lab... Hey, Tamsin, Tamsin, sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to show you something. What is it? Just take a look at this little guy. Oh. Now, what I want you to do is describe it. Okay, well, it's a green jelly person. Um which has a quite pointed sort of set of legs. He's kind of clutching a very fat belly and I can see he's, he's got an innie as a belly button and a really sort of cheeky kind of smile. I don't know why I call him a him, but he does have a tuft of hair at the top uh, and no sort of side follicles really at all. Pretty impressive, right? And since I met the man who made it, I don't think I'll ever look at a gummy lolly in the same way again. It's kind of like my eyes have been open. I now see the godlike creators, not just of jelly babies like this little guy, but of the entire family of confectionery shapes. That is our producer, Olivia Rosenman, and this is History Lab. Today, you'll start to see the world around you in a new way too. We're going to go searching for the unique original forms of which all our mass-produced stuff, everything we consume, is really just a shadow. And we'll learn why, even though we've never consumed more. The men behind it all, the pattern makers, why they're becoming a thing of the past. Can we get back to the jelly baby? Because I want to tell you about the guy who made it. Paul Kay, he's a second-generation pattern maker. Pattern as in, you know, people who invent stuff. No, no, pattern, P-A-T-T-E-R-N. But not a pattern like you'd use to knit or sew a piece of clothing. That's a different kind of pattern. It's a model made at the very beginning of a production process. A model that creates a mould that is used over and over again to make so much of the stuff that's around us. So the maker makes the model, makes the mould, makes the stuff. That's right. And Tamsin, if I hadn't stopped you from scoffing that jelly baby, do you think you would have noticed that perfectly placed tuft of hair or that cheeky grin? Probably not. When was the last time you ate a jelly snake? Yesterday. Did you notice those intricate epidermal scales? No, I was much more focused on the sugar hit. That's right. But the truth is that even though most people probably don't notice them, Each one of those elaborate details is there because someone like Paul Kay has painstakingly carved each one by hand. 
This machine runs relatively quietly. Okay. Right now, I'm back in Paul K's workshop. He's showing me his tools and materials. I'll produce my shape in um, a polyurethane plastic, mm-hmm. or it could be a, it could be carved in a car bog, literally. A, a what? Well, a, it's what you'd repair a car with. Okay. Or fill up a, a hole or something in your house. Oh, like that kind of... We just call it bog. It's called bog, okay. I pretended I got it there, Tamsin, but the truth is I had to Google that later. Bog is basically a solid plastic that's quite soft, so it's really easy to carve. I mean, maybe I've seen that at Bunnings. <laughs> right. And all this industrial work, it's actually happening in the basement of Paul's family home. So while me and Paul are downstairs in the workshop, his daughter's upstairs watching an action movie in the living room, surrounded by furniture and cabinetry and beautiful sculptures made by Paul in his spare time. But downstairs, Paul has a library of patterns. The original shapes of gummies and jubes and marshmallows and chocolates from all over the world. It's an archive of the originals. And every jelly baby or gummy lolly I've ever eaten is really just a copy of one of the true forms here. I would have seen every aspect of uh, confectionery subjects, every aspect. This is a more recent uh, set for uh, uh, Korea. Using specialised tools and 50 years of experience, Paul carves exquisite detail into miniature fruits, starfish, penguins, policemen, boats, airplanes. That is for the Ukraine Uh, So that was some sort of transport assortment. But Paul's not deluded. He's well aware that most people are more interested in the sugar than the shape. I'm sure they would look at that and go, oh, you know, well, you know, have a look at this sort of thing. Uh, Then, you know, after you've looked at it two or three times and it's just uh, making jokes about I'm eating him or I'm eating her or I've just eaten a radio or, you know... The more pattern makers I visited, the more I started to see how almost everything around us has an original form and an original maker. Even the salad bowls, all the salad bowls and strawberry punnets that you buy in Woolworths, etc. That's Debbie Tyrrell. She and her husband Greg have run a pattern making business in Sydney's northern beaches for 30 years. They've carved out their niche in pattern making for plastic vacuum forming. That's making patterns to make moulds for heaps of the everyday light plastic stuff that you've probably never thought about how it's made. If you walk into a chemist and there's a plastic tray holding lots of bottles of cosmetics and the bottles are all different shapes and they fit perfectly in these little holes in the tray, that is a vacuum form tray. When I started exploring this story, I had a hard time getting my head around the whole process. Like what is the difference between the original form and the objects made from it? So I went to visit a bunch of pattern makers to see what it all looked like. I met the pattern maker who crafted the blades of the Sydney Harbour Tunnel exhaust fan. And then I met another guy who shaped the handle on the side of the seats in Melbourne's metro trains. And then I went to a foundry where I saw molten metal being poured into moulds for petrol tanker hose fittings. Petrol tanker hose fittings? My brain is blowing. And then? I met the pattern maker who made the side panels for the Hilux when he was working at the Toyota factory in South Africa in the 90s. So basically everything but the kitchen sink. Actually, one pattern maker showed me a picture for a pattern that looked a lot like the sink in my kitchen. 
What did they look like? Well, that's the thing. I didn't really get to see them. What? They don't exist? Pattern makers rarely keep the patterns. Paul Kay with his Jelly Babies, he's the exception. Usually a pattern maker hands the pattern over to the production line. And when that thing stops being made, the pattern's just chucked out. Or sometimes it's even burnt. What? It's burnt? That's like destroying an archive. That's sacrilege. Well, the funny thing is, it didn't matter. Because speaking to the pattern makers opened my eyes to something bigger. All the mass-produced things in our lives, they're like shadows of a world of originals. And each one of those originals is exactly the opposite of the anonymous objects that we imagine on a factory production line. It's got a personal story. It comes from a world that's all but invisible. And it's also a world that's about to disappear. Well, pattern making as a distinct trade has a 19th century beginning. This is Jessie Adamstein. She's a design historian at UTS, and she's been doing some oral histories with many of the pattern makers I've been speaking to. In trying to understand what pattern making means to us today, she's had to go back to where it all started. In order to understand how pattern making came about, you kind of have to understand the history of metal casting. She means melting metal to make stuff out of, right? Right. And you can trace metal casting way back to Mesopotamia in around 3300 BCE. I didn't know we were doing an ancient history podcast. Pattern makers and other people that work in the casting industry love making a lot of noise about how they work in an ancient trade. How do we know this? One of the oldest mummies, if not the oldest preserved mummy, called Otzi, was found in northern Italy. And he apparently was buried or died with a cast copper axe. And then from about 645 BCE in China, you start getting sand casting. And sand casting is still the way a lot of metal is cast. So it's a very, very old technique. And to make objects out of melted metal, you need a mould. And to make a mould... You need a pattern maker! By about the 1820s in Great Britain, with the Industrial Revolution, there was so much demand for engineered products, for machinery. And so you start getting... Specific engineering draftsmen, moulders, fitters and turners started emerging, pattern makers. So those all sort of splintered out as demarked trades. And there's, you know, great debates between these trades over their their demarked zones of what was their specialisation, what was their skill that they were in charge of that no one else could touch. The fine finish of the patterns is evidence of the craftsmanship that has gone to their design and construction. Whether they are intended for the hand moulder or for quantity production, the patterns have been designed to give first-class results with the greatest economy of labour in the foundry. It sounds like pattern making is a really unusual combination of art and science. Right, and pattern makers are a pretty modest bunch, so it took me a while to understand just how impressive their skills really are. But there's a reason it's been referred to as the king of trades. The precision required is just astounding. We're talking pinpoint measurements, tolerances in fractions of millimetres, calculating exact volumes in all kinds of shapes. Remember Paul Kay, the jelly baby man? Yeah, yeah. So not only did he have to create those cute tiny shapes, but he had to produce the shape so that the final tube 
would weigh in at precisely what the manufacturer ordered, to the milligram. To the milligram? Pattern makers must have to have a really good understanding of the materials that they're working with. Yeah, so not only do they have to have a deep understanding of wood and the other materials that the patterns are made from, but they also have to understand the properties of the material that the final object will be made out of. Like, say for objects that will be made out of metal, they need to take into account that metal shrinks as it cools. And on top of that, there's some pretty complicated maths. Do you know White Wings pancake mixes? Yeah. This is Peter Phipps. He's a third-generation pattern maker. Yeah, you shake it and stuff. Well, like they're still on the shelf. Yeah. And where you put your handle, it has like three finger grips yeah. in the handle, right? You obviously like pancakes. <laughs> I don't think I've shaken a bottle of White Wings pancake mix for over 15 years. But as soon as he said it, I was filled with really warm memories of those super sweet and slightly artificially fluffy pancakes. As he was describing that handle, I could feel my fingers sitting in those three perfect grooves. But I used to love making that sort of stuff. And we had to get the volume right. So we didn't have a computer to calculate a volume of an odd shape. We had to use Archimedes' principle. And for those of you who don't remember high school maths... We'd split the pancake bottle in half. We'd put a lead weight inside close it back up, wrap it with glad wrap and we'll sink it in water on a set of scales because they wanted it to be, say, 375 millilitres and they wanted it to finish 5 millimetres below the lid where the volume was. So how do you do that on an odd shape? That's how we did it. I mean, that's insane. And that is what drew Jesse to pattern makers in the first place. The way they talked about making things was so interesting because they had this love of physical objects, this love of form, materiality, and this clearly this very deep knowledge that, you know, I think in many ways transcended the kind of knowledge I'd come across from designers. And I thought, shit, they really know about the physical world in a way that designers hope to but perhaps don't always achieve. But before a pattern maker even picks up a tool, they're applying another almost superhuman skill. It was almost secondary. Making it happen was almost secondary to that initial excitement of, yeah, reading a drawing and, and seeing the thing in three dimensions in my own mind. This is Peter Williams. He practised pattern making for almost 25 years. He started out as an apprentice in 1978 when he was 16 years old. And I can remember it as an apprentice, you know. The most exciting thing was going up to Dave's office, the manager's office, tapping on the door and saying, Dave, I need a job. What do, you got, what do you got for me next? And Dave would go to the plan file and take out the next job and we'd roll that drawing out onto the bench and I'd look at it and go, yep, yep, righto, yep. And, you know, Dave would say, you know, we need 400 castings, aluminium bronze. Sometimes we'd sit there and look at a drawing for two, two hours on a bench and nut that out, you know, and, and see it in our minds and agree on things, and then I'd go away and get started. So the pattern maker visualises a detailed three-dimensional object from a simple sketch on paper? Well, sometimes the sketches were made on mylar film, which is basically just a stable kind of plastic because they handled them so much. Like bog, but flat. Sometimes Paul Kay will just get a random image from the internet, like, we need a bike, here's a stock image. 
He's also made a lot of gummy lollies for cartoons like Mickey Mouse or Shrek or Madagascar. And the likeness of these patterns was really impressive. And I asked him if he refers to pictures or videos of the characters as he works, but he doesn't. I just start carving away and I'm just using my own uh, skill and my own ability uh, in visualising where I want to end up at. Not everyone can be a pattern maker, old men on porches tell me. You have to see things no one else sees. This is a line from a collection of poems called The Pattern Maker's Daughter. Well, my name is uh, Sandy Gertz and I hail from western Pennsylvania. And Johnstown, where I am from, is filled with steel mills and filled with the immigrants that came at the turn of the century to work the steel mills. And my grandfather came from Germany as an immigrant to work in the steel mills. And then my father went into the steel mills and uh, eventually over uh, quite a few years became a pattern maker. Sandy's poetry was inspired by a deep admiration for her father's work and a realisation that came to her only later in life. When I was a little girl, I really didn't know much at all about what he did, except I knew that it involved math, and I knew that it involved blueprints and things. But I always would notice that my father would draw. I would just find these little pieces of paper in different places in the house, and he'd do this elaborate sketch or drawing. And I'd say, oh, Dad, you drew this. And he never made a big deal of it. I guess I grew to call him a closet artist. Uh, I remember walking down the street in my hometown. I told some old men on a porch one day that my dad was a pattern maker and they said, oh, and they just stopped and they said, well, not everyone can be a pattern maker. And they said, you have to see things no one else sees. That's something Jesse's noticed too. They all have creative practices on the side, whether they make sculpture, a lot of them make sculpture, whether they make furniture, whether they make toys for the kids. But what they're doing isn't necessarily in the realm of what the art world would consider art. So there are those sorts of weird, interesting class tensions going on there. So I didn't really have this uh, space when we built the house. Mm -hmm. We sort of, it was just uh, dirt under there and um, brick walls and the ceiling there. I didn't actually have a floor. I'm back with Paul Kay, standing at the entrance to the place his jelly babies are born. So I had to uh, really get going and move, let's say, 50 years of accumulation from inside a factory. So why has Paul squished two generations of pattern making into the basement of his house? Uh, work was getting slower and slower, so... We, I just thought, well, I can't really afford to get out there and buy a factory or even lease one. So I took the plunge and uh, we invested under the house. It was a story I heard from most of the pattern makers. Peter and Bruce Phipps said the same thing. The factory building bought by Peter's grandfather is about the size of a basketball court. But now... Now we've divided it and we just used half of it. So we sublet half of it out to someone else um, to help cover costs because... Yeah. Where we used to, at one stage, maybe had ten people. Mm-hmm. There's three of us and a robot. In the basement, I found the pattern of one of Australia's most iconic inventions. Back from the days when Peter's dad, Bruce, was running the business. What, the hills hoist? Close, the Victor lawnmower. Turning grass into lawn is easy with the Victor team. In 1958, Victor was making 143,000 lawnmowers a year and exporting them around the world. 
Producing the pattern for the mower's engine was a really lucrative job for the Phipps. But now, while the mowers are still assembled in Australia, their components are made in China and America. And what about the Tyrrells, you know, who made the salad bowls and the strawberry punnets? They're also winding things down. We have been trying for 18 months to buy a factory. We've, just, we've actually just this weekend decided we've given up. By this point, we've only probably got another five years. We'll see what happens. It was kind of surprising. I mean, our lives are increasingly filled with manufactured stuff. I wanted to find out why all these pattern makers are struggling to find work. So I got Jessie back into the studio for a chat. There are two sides to that answer. Technology and political economy. But it's complicated. Okay, well, let's start with political economy then. What do you mean by it? Well, basically that political decisions have economic effects and that affects people's livelihoods. From the 1980s, Australia started opening up its global trade, so reducing tariffs. So suddenly Australia was competing against a lot of other countries, competing on the basis of wages and also environmental regulations, things like that. So it wasn't really a level playing field for Australian manufacturers. What does that mean on the ground for a manufacturing business? Well, first of all, it means that money is a massive issue. And so sometimes it results in a race to the bottom in terms of making things cheaper and cheaper. You just can't tell. It's all about cost in manufacturing. If someone can do something cheaper, which is acceptable, that's what they're going to go for. So much of manufacturing is cost-driven. So many of the discussions are just about how much is it going to cost to get it made? How much is it going to cost to get a prototype? You can see why they're trying to work within really, really tight constraints because their customer is saying it has to be done for this amount, otherwise I'm going somewhere else. Our cosmetic trays, for instance, before they went overseas, you had to be able to shake it without the bottle rattling, mostly if there was a mark on the forming, etc. It was a reject. Now they're happy to bring it in from China and they might scrap half of what they bring in and that's just acceptable. So you can kind of think of Australian manufacturing as a damaged and fragile ecosystem. And within it, pattern makers, well, they're like a critically endangered species. Businesses were faced with actually three options. The first one was just closed down, and a lot of them did. The second one was maybe you could offshore your operations if you had enough capital and the willingness to do that. The third option was to upgrade your technology. So bring in the CNC machines, for example. Valve bodies, manifolds, gear housings. Regulators, pump components, fuel systems parts, motor bases, prototypes of all kinds. These are just a fraction of a vast array of parts being produced on this astounding, numerically controlled machining centre. So, so what exactly was or is a numerically controlled machining centre? It's basically just a really big machine that is programmed by a computer to cut away material to form shapes. These days, they just call it a CNC machine. There's a bit of debate about when you say the first numerically controlled machine came about. It's generally traced to the late 1940s, immediately post-war in the United States. It has long been the dream of the metalworking industry to mill, drill, bore, ream and tap in one setup automatically on a single machine. 
By about the 60s and 70s in the United States, CNC machines were becoming much more widely taken up in all different industries. But like most things, it took them a while to get to Australia. In terms of the Australian context, you didn't see a wide rollout of CNC machines until the early 2000s. Might have been a bit of 1990s, but these machines were really expensive. Employers were reluctant to put out that much money for a big machine that was possibly going to be out of date in a few years. And now they're pretty ubiquitous and they've changed the way pattern makers work. I don't do anything by hand anymore other than put my fingers on a keyboard, on a computer. And so, you know, it comes out the other end in a lump of aluminium. That's really it. And that's why so many pattern makers have opted to leave the industry because standing in front of a CNC was not how they imagined their lives were going to be and they're bored. These people are highly skilled, often very creative as well. They imagined they were going to spend their lives making stuff with their hands. So you can see from an employer perspective, if you have the money to actually buy a machine, then you're basically hiring yourself a very, very efficient all-night worker. (laughs) When I visited the Phipps, the CNC machine was working non-stop, cutting a pattern for a piece of a mining machine. That's the droning sound you can hear in the background. So how long would that machine take to cut out something like that? What you see there, it's, it's typically a couple of days in the machine. And how long would it have taken to make it out of wood oh. in the old stuff? It would take two weeks to do it. Right. Remember how Peter Phipps said that now it was just three of them and a robot? Well, this is how Peter's father, Bruce, who ran the business in the 60s and 70s, sees it. All they do now is they draw it up on the computer and send it down on the machine and it does it, so you don't need any hand tools anymore. So I've got all my dad's hand tools and mine <laughs> around home, which were not, not worth anything these days, you know. Yeah. How old is Bruce? He's 85. So Bruce has basically watched the arrival of these machines and seen them replace all the men in the business, one by one. Yeah. So let me get my head around this. These men, who used to be the makers of everything, either learn a new set of skills to operate the machines that are doing the work in which you were skilled, or retrain. Yeah, move on, get a new job, just do something else. But of course, it's just not that simple. And you're also right that they're mostly men. If I'm a pattern maker and I'm not making patterns, then what am I? And that hit me like a train. It hit me like a freight train. If I'm a pattern maker and I'm not making patterns, then what am I? And uh, it was a really sobering thought. And that was when I thought, well, you're going to have to be something else because pattern making is not going to be around. Get used to it. So what are you going to do? And I didn't have an answer. I did not have an immediate answer for that. For most of the guys I spoke to, I got the feeling that a significant part of their identity as a pattern maker was formed in their apprenticeship and their education at a technical college or TAFE. There used to be pattern making courses in every state in Australia. And now there's only one left in Brisbane. And last year it had seven apprentices enrolled. The the challenge for us at that time all of us fellas on the shop floor was 
which way are you going to go individually? How are you going to feed yourself? How are you going to stay in in work? But I do think there are issues of masculinity there too, that, that our society structures itself in such a way that men feel that they have to have a occupationally based definition of themselves. Yeah, that expectation's crap. But removing it's also going to come with a bunch of difficulties. If you look at, say, the United States and the kind of political anger that ultimately resulted in the election of Trump, you actually think, well, we really do have to understand these concerns and do a better job at dealing with it rather than just dismissing these people as kind of part of the past and therefore, well, we've moved on. So understanding that that anger and that disappointment has political ramifications made me go, okay, I do need to understand these people. Which brings us back to politics. In Australia, manufacturing for a long time had a reputation of being kind of a dirty industry, of hard work, and also a very working class, left-wing, union-based set of industries, which some sides of politics weren't so keen on and therefore didn't want to support. But does it matter if we don't manufacture much in Australia anymore? I mean, if it's cheaper and quicker to make stuff elsewhere, why not just import it? And does it matter if machines take over the work that humans used to do? I mean, aren't they more precise and more efficient? They they certainly don't need sick leave. It is a fallacy that the decline of manufacturing is this inevitable fact that happens without our involvement. The decline in manufacturing is the result of policy and political manoeuvring. I'm not heavy into politics, but I feel like both parties, both the two main parties, they gave up on us. They leave it open for everything to come in from overseas. And okay, as a consumer, I can go and buy all these cheap things on the shelf. I don't want to fall back on knee-jerk, old nationalistic claims for kind of a nostalgic manufacturing past. I'm not suggesting that we should go back to the way things were, which were not necessarily very environmentally clean or uh, particularly equitable in their employment of women, for example. But I do think there's great value in being a country that still is able to make things. One of the first reasons for that is simply just sustainability and resource use. It makes sense to value add to your resources rather than just being the world's mining pit. makes a lot of sense for innovation and research and development. Manufacturing is one of the biggest contributors to research and development. I feel like we've all got to just push bits of paper around in a circle and that's going to keep us afloat. I feel like you need all the different sectors of society work. You need the farmers, you need the manufacturers, you need the insurance companies, you need the paper pushers, you need all, all of us to be doing things. And if you want to think about this in the context of the future of work, there are excellent kinds of jobs that can be created in manufacturing. Fantastic skilled jobs, not Uber driving, maybe something like engineering pattern making. I don't, I don't see that I'm ever going to be able to teach anybody else to become a pattern maker because there's not going to be any point in that. You might have been talking to some of the last pattern makers in Australia. Yeah, that could be true. And I've been trying to understand what we'll lose when they're all gone. I went to visit a man called Henry Wilson in his super schmick studio in the inner Sydney suburb of Darlinghurst. Hi, Henry. Yes. Olivia. Olivia. Nice to meet you. Likewise. I'm already recording. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Henry designs furniture and lighting fittings and some other accessories. He showed me what is probably the most beautiful sticky tape dispenser I've ever seen. Did Henry have a beard? He didn't have a beard, but he was a hipster in every other way. So how does Henry fit in? Well, that tape dispenser I mentioned, 
It was commissioned by a very high-end cosmetics brand with a pretty stylish aesthetic. They needed their shop assistants to be able to use the thing with one hand. So not only was it devastatingly beautiful, it was also really heavy because it was cast in gunmetal bronze. And the pattern for the mould for the casting was made by Peter Phipps. Peter as in pancake shake bottle Peter Phipps. Yeah. And when I went to visit Peter in his shop, he even took me around the corner to the foundry where the molten metal was being poured into the casts to make them. That's pretty cool. It's like a slurry, but they, just for Henry, work really. And they run so I asked Henry why he got his stuff made locally, rather than sending it overseas where he could surely get it cheaper. Why I manufacture really in Australia is, you know, I like the idea that I can go there, have a discussion with Peter and go and see the foundry and we can resolve technical problems quite quickly together. It's a collaborative kind of orchestra of people. You know, a really good experienced manufacturer or pattern maker can can change your design or enhance your design with their skill. It's that inventive step and that's what I think makes industrial design when you have a human involved so much more interesting. A computer will never say, hey, you can make it more efficient like this. And if you program in a mistake, it'll make that mistake perfectly. If you're trying to do something that is a mass production run, you don't want to do it by hand. That's horrible. You know, talk to Paul Kay about machining 10,000 castings with his son. Horrible, mind-numbing, injuring work. But if you're trying to do something as intricate as a glucose tube, chances are doing it manually actually makes a lot more sense. And I think we have to start thinking really adaptively about technologies for the particular function that we're trying to use and say, is it appropriate in this case? Are there other ways? Rather than completely rejecting older methods as just being of the past, something to look back at nostalgically and that's it. I think particularly now in a context where almost a kind of technological triumphalism where people have just said, well, this is it, this is the world we're in, we're in a completely digital space now, we just have to catch up and retrain and, you know, jump on board because there's no other choice. Whereas I think if we remind ourselves that the way technologies are outlaid into society, they are also social decisions, they are made by people, people with a lot of power. (laughs) It sort of makes us remember that um, perhaps we're not as powerless as we might think we are but it requires a lot of people to be thinking that way. (laughs) You could even say it would take a lot of people to see what pattern makers see. This is History Lab and I'm Tamsin Peach. This episode was produced by the wonderful Olivia Rosenman. Thanks to our collaborating historian, Jesse Adamstein, and to the UTS Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellowship Scheme. Tom Allenson was the executive producer And Ryan Pemberton did the sound design. Thank you to the National Library of Australia for use of their oral history collections. And thanks to Ellen Lee Beter and Lauren Carroll Harris for the wisdom of your ears. And special thanks to all the pattern makers, to Paul, Debbie, Peter, Bruce, Sandy, the other Peter and Henry. You were really generous with your time. And there was a bunch of stuff that didn't make it into this episode. Thank you to Levi the Blacksmith, to Cockatoo Island for hosting us, to Sarah Faye and Scarlett from Michigan Technological University. Your ideas found their way into the backstory. History Lab is an original series created by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS in conjunction with 2SER 107.3. 
If you're a historian with a great idea for an episode, send us a pitch by heading to historylab.net. History Lab is made in the studios of two SER that sit on the lands of the Gadigal people. We pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. They've been telling stories here on this place since time immemorial.